From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. People sort of have this idea of Italian food as sort of, of locked right. in this one way. And yeah. whether you're talking about a recipe like cacio e pepe, and you know, people have fights about amatriciana. But these recipes have not been around that long. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. And you just heard from today's guest, Elizabeth Mincilli. Elizabeth has written nine books on Italy, including now three cookbooks. Uh, growing up in the Midwest, Elizabeth first tasted Italy when an abrupt family move took her to Rome, setting into motion a life of delicious Italian food, architecture, and more. So her latest cookbook, The Italian Table, is a resource for entertaining the Italian way. The book takes us all across the country with 12 unique menus and recipes as our guide. In today's show, we're talking with Elizabeth about producing The Italian Table, from its conception as a how-to guide to shooting all her own photographs, about the status of Italian dining culture today, and about how she stumbled into cookbooks and how she approaches her work. Plus, we've got our secret ingredient cards out to play a little Italian dinner party game, and then later in the show, we're rounding out our fall cookbook preview with critic Paula Forbes as we discuss the reissuing of Claudia Fleming's seminal dessert book, The Last Quarter. Also, Celia Sack from Omnivore Books joins us, and of course, we've got recipes to bring the Italian table to your table. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Elizabeth Mincilli joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, we're so glad to have you. So we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, The Italian Table, which is, I think, your ninth cookbook. Is it's that my right? Ninth. Your ninth book? It's my ninth book. Ninth book. My yes. third cookbook. Okay, yes. Um, ninth book, third cookbook. But I want to start by talking about you a little bit first, and then we'll move That's to That's always the good. Cookbooks. I always like talking about me. Good, good. That's what we're here for. <laughs> good, so, good. Perfect. So you grew up in the Midwest. You were born in St. Louis, Missouri. Is that right? That's true. That's very true. And did food play an important role in your life as a kid? Absolutely. I mean, but certainly not the food that's featured in my book. Um, okay. yeah, I yeah. had, I had an easy bake oven by right. the time I was four. <laughs> we were the kind of family that discussed dinner at breakfast. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were ordering ribs and we were, you know, sure. my mom got a time. Remember when she got a taco kit when those came out? I mean, she was always sort of, adventurous but i mean this was you know back in the 60s and 70s so right but we were always into food yes yeah and you were interested in it personally from an early age yeah personally well personally from an early age because my parents were always you know entertaining and cooking sure and then when you're 12, your family decides to move to Rome. Well, my family didn't decide. My parents decided. Sure. Okay. <laughs> they did. They went, they did. They went to Florence, Venice, Rome, and then they came back and, and just packed up our house. And I packed up my Barbies and we headed to Rome, which I was very upsetting, you know, obviously to a 12 year old for sure. about a minute and a half until right. I got there and realized this is fantastic. <laughs> right. And, um, I mean, looking back now, I think, you know, I realize how, how influential it was to yeah. move there at that age. And how long were you there? Uh, we spent two years there. Okay. And then we moved back to the New York area, New York and Connecticut. Uh-huh. And, but we always went back in the summers. Okay. Either to Italy or to France or Greece or Spain. Cause okay. my dad had a job that we let him go away in the summers. And, um, yeah, but I went back on my own. I did a junior year abroad in France. Okay. And then it wasn't until my, uh, dissertation at 
had to go, I had to go research <laughs> in Florence. Right. And at that point, you're still interested in Europe and in Italy. And obviously you're there for your dissertation, but you didn't really know that you were going to live there. Like, uh, no, point. I didn't. I, what happened was that, you know, and I, I continued to be, very interested in food uh -huh. my whole life. Okay. And by, you know, I, I was, I was the one who cooked for our family in high school. I was the one that cooked for all the roommates in college. Yeah. I was the one that was throwing dinner parties in their studio apartment on the Upper West Side. And, right. and anyway, I moved to Florence and it was fantastic. I mean, who doesn't like Florence? And I was working in the Medici archives, mm -hmm. researching basically like, you know, 16th century shopping lists because I was working on gardens at the time. And, uh, and I loved it. And I was, you know, going to the market. I was, cooking my way through Marcella Hazan. Uh -huh. And then after two years, my, uh, the grant ran out. Okay. And I thought, okay, great. I have to A, move back to the States, B, actually sit down and write the dissertation <laughs> right. and see if everything goes according to plan. I'm going to end up, you know, being an academic teaching somewhere. I probably don't want to be teaching for not much money. Sure. And I really was happy in Italy. And so I was already sort of reconsidering my commitment to academia. Okay. And, um, that's when I met Domenico. And I knew immediately he would be my husband. It took him another few months to realize that, but uh, <laughs> happens but, like that. Sometimes. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah. So within a year I had my Italian husband, Italian uh -huh. baby. And, and that's when I sort of shifted gears and stopped writing, you know, academic papers and started writing for magazines like Architectural Digest, Art News, Art and Antiques. Uh huh. And did you ever finish your dissertation? I didn't. No. No, Left there was no, it was, it's, it stayed in boxes under my desk, sort uh -huh. of looking at me for a while. But there was no reason yeah. to. So. Was that a hard decision to make? Not at all. No, no because I was moment. there. I mean, I was, I had moved to Rome and I had a baby and right. I had immediately people asking me to write and not only books, but articles. And at the time, this was the golden age of magazines. <laughs> sure. And I, you know, they were offering me the equivalent of what I would be paying in tuition to finish my dissertation. Yeah. And I was writing about Italian Renaissance gardens. I was writing about architecture. I was writing about the same things. And I just thought, this is crazy. There's no reason for me to take off two years and write this dissertation that I knew I wasn't going to be an academic. Right. Yeah. I, I admire that a lot. What was your objective when you were producing this book? What did you hope to capture? In uh, well, this, this book sort of brings together uh, a career of writing about many different things because uh -huh. my first six books were about art and architecture and design primarily. So one was about ceramics and, and interior design and architecture, restoring uh, historical houses. And so, um, and my last two books were about food in Italy. And so with this, I got the chance to really explore the connection uh, between food and culture in a way that, I mean, I've always written about food, but I've never written just about food. Even right. when I'm writing about restaurants, I feel like I'm more, I'm reporting on the experience as much as the quality of the food. Because right. for me, that's what really affects your enjoyment of food. And so in the Italian table, what I did was I decided to document 12 meals. These were meals that I had, um, over the, over the course of a lifetime. You know, I, I sort of had to pick and choose which meals to go back to and which meals to document for the book. And I really decided to be as geographically diverse as possible. Also, um, the way Italians eat, I really wanted to answer this question. It's not an easy question to answer right. and there is no answer to it really. Um, but it's a question I get all the time, yeah. you know, through social media or, you know, through, through whatever, whenever I meet people. And, you know, I do culinary tours as well. Right. And, um, 
and people want to know, they say, well, Elizabeth, you know, it seems seemingly, and I'm on Instagram, you know, and I'm documenting everything I eat. And, right. And, and they're saying, if you're eating, you know, pasta and pizza and gelato all the time, why aren't you bigger? <laughs> you know, why aren't Italians bigger? What's going on here? And I think the part of the equation that's always missing is that with Italians, it's never just about the food. Right. So you're not going there to get, you know, a double cheese pizza. You're going because it's Saturday night and you're with your friends and, Pizza is sort of secondary. I mean, the quality, it's always, Italians take Italian food extremely seriously, but they don't take it seriously at all. Right. You know, there's this, this yeah. sort of conundrum. And um, and that's what I wanted to explore. So that if you see, you know, the way the Italians are eating pasta when they're at the beach, the way you see a student in Rome eating a slice of pizza on his break from class, um, eating lunch with the princess in her garden. You right. know, what what are they eating? How much of it are they eating? Why are they eating it? And then what about that garden? What about the table? What are the forks they're using? You know, how does, I mean, I can remember one of the most extraordinary experiences I had while working on this book was with this woman who was making ravioli in this little town south of Parma. And it wasn't about the making ravioli that I found extraordinary because I've been with a lot of, you know, grandmas making ravioli and it's always great. Right. But the one thing I learned was when we sat down to eat, she piled all the ravioli in a really deep bowl. Uh-huh. And layered it, you know, with the butter and stuff and cheese. But I just thought that's really weird. I would never think of putting these delicate ravioli in a bowl. Like right. I just think that would be really hard to serve. How's this going to happen? And she took a fork and she very delicately picked up each single ravioli and put it on somebody's plate huh. until there were exactly eight ravioli on everybody's plate. Right. And each ravioli was intact and warm. And that's the way she did it. And that's the way everybody in this part of the world did it. And I had never seen this before. And so these are the kind of things that I sort of want to, to, wanted to share because I think they're important. You know, it's not just a big blob of ravioli on your plate and it's about the, the ceremony of it. Right. Yeah. And you do such a great job of sharing that, but also sort of translating it for the home cook. So not only do you have recipes, but you sort of make suggestions for how you might set the table, what sort of silverware or plate settings you might use. So you're really also sort of doing that um, work for the home cook as well. And putting together maybe like a dinner party in a packet. Well, when we, when I first started talking about this book with my editor at uh-huh. Rizzoli six years ago, the original working title was the Italian Dinner Party Handbook. Okay. Yeah. And I just thought that was a great idea. And it's sort of my idea was to actually not just document them, but make it easier for people to actually entertain. And, sure. and so when we sort of worked and we, and I had finished, you know, the photograph, cause I did the photographs for the book and it became a much bigger book and we couldn't call it a handbook anymore. Right. But I still very much wanted to include those instructions. And, um, because I think a lot of people today are intimidated by entertaining and especially when faced with a full menu of an Italian meal, like, Oh my God, I can't do that. You know, I work every day. I don't have time to do the shopping and I don't want to be stressed out. I'm somebody who's entertained all their life. So for me, it's really easy. And I wanted to make it as easy as possible for somebody else. And so, you know, Thursday, you know, make sure your shopping is done. Friday, remember to soak the beans or make the dough or whatever it is. You know, Friday night, if you have time, set the table a day ahead of time. Right. That'll get it out of the way. And my great aim is for when your guests arrive, you've already been sitting down for 20 minutes with a Negroni. Yes, I love that goal. <laughs> <laughs> That's all, always my goal. <laughs> yeah, I'm all about that. Do you think a lot about tradition? There's a, a part in this book that really stuck out to me when you're cooking with, and my Italian is not great, so, resdores? Res, resdore. Resdore. 
No, no, it's good. No, good. no, no you did it. Um, which sort of translates to the housewife in a sense, but mostly the sort of focus, the term sort of, um, is connected to the kitchen, um, in, in large part, you note. And you're talking about them cooking from recipes that have passed down from generation to generation and sort of cooking for families, but that that has evolved. And whereas people may have sat down for a long lunch um, a while ago, now today dinner has sort of become the main meal. I feel like as I was looking through your book, it sort of felt like you're helping people sort of achieve some of those traditional ways of hosting and having a dinner party. And then I was also sort of thinking about the way that Italian food and Italian cooking has sort of evolved in the modern time as well. Do you mm-hmm. think about that when you're working oh, on your books? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, in? absolutely. And because even in, you know, people sort of have this idea of Italian food as sort of, of locked right. in this one way. And yeah. whether you're talking about a recipe like cacio e pepe and, you know, people have fights about amatriciana, but these recipes have not been around that long. So, I mean, yeah. it's just our idea of, you know, what's the last article we read or what's the last book we read. And, sure. and the same is true with these traditions, um, local traditions. Yes. You know, like these women have a little notebook with, you know, with their recipes handed down, but the way that they make these recipes and, and how they make them and who they make them for has changed. Right. Because they don't all live in the same house anymore, maybe the extended family. You know, they're getting back to the concept of the resdora. It's yes, it's sort of housewife, but it's also, I, I, I kept thinking of the word home economics because the yeah. resdora was, she ran the household. So right. it was everything from, you know, feeding the chickens to making sure there was chicken on the table. And right. it all had to do with weights and measures and numbers and people. And, um, and that's changed too, you know, in, in, in women's life. You know, today in Italy, most women work. Right. You know, so there's that. And it's really funny because my mother-in-law still can't get over the fact that I don't spend the whole morning cooking for my husband's lunch. You know, but she'll still call up and say, so what did you make this morning? You <laughs> yeah. know, and it, even though she knows I'm making dinner, in her mind, that's when you do the cooking. Sure. And right. um, and I think in a lot of older generations, but, but I find that a lot of the younger generations do still want to cook but in an easier way. So yeah, yeah, it's very much present. Yeah. And I know your mother-in-law holds on to staunch Italian coffee traditions (laughs) too, which you've written about before. (laughs) Yeah, in my other book. You mentioned that you photographed this book yourself, which I wanted to ask about. How did you make the decision to do that? And why was that important for you? Well, when I, for my first six books, I worked closely with professional photographers. Again, golden age of publishing when I could hire a photographer. Um, And when I started my blog and when I did the last two books, that wasn't possible for financial reasons okay. primarily um but also you know a blog you don't hire a photographer to do your blog right. or or I don't right. and um uh so I started becoming a better photographer uh and so I ph- photographed the last two books I felt very comfortable doing that but they're smaller books but when I started looking at this book I I just naturally assumed I would I would work with a photographer and I talked to a lot of photographers about it and then I realized you know I'm going to be working on this book over a year and a half and including different seasons, including different places. There was sure. no way in the world that I could coordinate the photography shoot in real time that I wanted in this book. We could have done a lot of studio work, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted actually to document the food as it went from the kitchen to the table and plopped down in front of me and right. my fork in my hand. And um, And so that's why I made the decision to photograph it myself. And was that challenging? Like, tell us a little bit about your process, having to think about that photography. I mean, did you have people helping you cook? 
Uh, oh, I, yeah, I usually yeah. never was the cook. Sure. So in okay. all these meals, uh, rare, I mean, I tested all the recipes and some of the dishes that I didn't get good photographs of in, in the, in real time, I then remade and cooked. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of nuts. So I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was because what you're doing is, you know, I was thinking like a writer. So uh-huh. documenting things, getting the recipes, talking to people, interviewing them. And at the same time, I was taking photographs. I do it a lot anyway, you know, with my iPhone. I'm, I'm doing that all the time. Right. But doing it for a book like this, it was a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit stressful yeah. sometimes. I mean, it's funny. The first time you do something that's very stressful, I could probably do it again much in an easier way. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, I had my, I had my daughter helping me as well. So she was, you know, helping not style things, but she was there to support me. Right. It was fun. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was very rewarding. Yeah. This book comes after one of your previous books, which is Eating My Way Through Italy, which is a somewhat cookbook. It has recipes in it, but is sort of more um, narrative nonfiction. Of yes, you yep. telling stories. nonfiction narrative is what it's called. Nonfiction narrative. <laughs> there we go. I had it. Just I, Almost. I them. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about who the audience for your books are. I think often I pick up your books and think your cookbooks, like this most recent one and Eating My Way Through Italy, and feel like they're sort of designed maybe for people who do not live in Italy? Is that a fair assessment? Someone who wants to maybe emulate or understand Are they inspirational? (laughs) That could be another way of saying it. Yeah, no, they're, uh, I mean, they're books that can be either uh, used, like for my uh, past two books, Eating Rome and Eating My Way Through Italy, um, they're nonfiction narratives, so they're a bit about me, they're a bit memoir, they're a bit about food, they're always about food. And and then they also give practical advice. So if you are coming to Italy, you know, you can go to this restaurant and you can go to this, uh, you know, store or bakery or gelateria. Um, and then there are recipes so that you can actually make them at home. The first two books. This is a real cookbook, right? The Italian table. But I feel like they are, they cover a lot of bases. And I feel that that's also why, uh, maybe bookstores don't quite understand where to put them. You know, is this in the cooking session section? Is it in the travel section? Yeah. And is it in the travel food section? And so they're very, um, I don't know. They're hard to, to pin down. Right. This is last book though. It's funny because I mean, this last book is, is a cookbook, but then I'm getting interviewed by a lot of travel writer, travel journalists too, because they say, no, this is, this book is inspirational. It inspires you to go to Italy. It's like, well, okay. It's, it was supposed to inspire you to stay in your kitchen and cook Italian <laughs> food, but, right. but I guess it works both ways. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about going to Italy and then coming home. Yes. And yes. Cooking go, Italian you go to, food go to Italy to do your shopping and then come home. Exactly. Yes. That sounds amazing. <laughs> We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Elizabeth Minchilli. But first, we're catching up with Salt and Spine friend and cookbook critic Paula Forbes about one important cookbook being reissued this fall after it was first published nearly two decades ago. Hi, Paula. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. So we're excited to have you back again. Uh, you mentioned uh, a while back that one of the books that was being reissued this year is The Last Course by Claudia Fleming. And so we wanted to talk more a little bit about that book in particular and why its reissue is so important. Yeah. So this is very, very exciting to me. I just found out this was happening yesterday. Um, and th- this book is cult favorite, especially among pastry chefs and people who collect baking and pastry books. Uh And part of the reason is that it is impossible to find. Right. 
it is just like nowhere to be found. It is this book by Claudia Fleming, who was the pastry chef at Gramercy Tavern in New York City. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just this beautiful, beautifully written. The desserts were super innovative for the time. Hold up divided seasonally so you have this concept that desserts and pastry should be cooked seasonally not just you know the savory kitchen um and she's playing with herbs and she's playing with savory flavors that at the time were sort of new to the world pastry so this is the book that if you are a serious pastry chef you want in your kitchen now unfortunately until super recent well until this fall the only way you could get it was to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a copy on eBay. Um, I looked up the current status and there's a $220 copy that you can buy. And then one that's signed that's 600. Wow. <laughs> so reassuring this book for, you know, however much a regular new cookbook costs is going to be able to put this book in the hands of a lot more people. Yeah, and that that's so interesting that it's so hard to find. I mean, it's it's a little bit older, but it's not a super old book. I mean, we're not talking decades and decades. And it's also, you know, a book that is very accessible for home bakers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just looked it up. It was 2001. It was published. Okay. So we're not even talking about the 90s. It's right. Fairly recent. Um, and I think I think you're right. I think that this book hits that sweet spot of not out, out of the reach of home cooks, but maybe just a little bit of a stretch. So it's like just enough of a challenge to really be fun and appealing to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think that that's part of its appeal is that, oh, this is the book that you tackle when when you're really in the groove. Right. And have you have you seen in your I know you've been tracking cookbooks for many years. Have you seen other sort of cookbooks like this that have been sort of pivotal older cookbooks that have been reissued? I know that we mentioned obviously the joy of cooking, which is reissued in a previous conversation with you, which is obviously reissued with some regularity. But have there been other sort of instances that you can recall of books of this sort of nature being brought back to life with a new issue? I don't think I can't think of one that is quite this level that people people were that disappeared and came back sort of mythically. Um, (laughs) But there are a couple other reissues coming this fall. Fuchsia Dunlop's uh, Sichuan cooking book is being reissued. Uh Tartine, the original Tartine cookbook. They're doing a new version of that I believe has some added content to it. So yeah, so it does, it does happen, but normally not, they don't, the books don't disappear and then return in quite as dramatic fashion as the last course. Yeah, I mean, super exciting and exciting for people who want to get their hands on it and don't have two to six hundred dollars to drop today. So. Thank yeah, no you, kidding. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Paula, for bringing our attention um, to the la- the new issue of the Last Course by Claudia Fleming, and we'll be looking for it this fall. Thanks. We're gearing up for the fiftieth episode of Salt and Spine in just a few weeks. Wow! In just over a year since our launch, we have absolutely loved telling the stories behind cookbooks by sitting down with dozens of your and my favorite cookbook authors, from Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nosra and Allison Roman. Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we're publishing recipes, author excerpts, holding cookbook giveaways, and so much more. In fact, this podcast 
podcast is only possible because of, insert PBS jingle here, listeners like you. And to celebrate our 50th episode, we're running a special promotion. If you become a sponsor of Salt and Spine before that episode, you'll be entered into a contest to win one of several cookbooks from our recent guests. Now that's in addition to other perks you'll get, like Salt and Spine bookmarks, t-shirts, and more. You can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash salt and spine. Now back to our conversation with Elizabeth Mincilli, author of The Italian Table. So I pulled a couple of cookbooks down, including a particular cookbook that I know has been influential to you, Marcella Hassan's Essentials of Italian Cooking, of Classic Italian Cooking. Are there particular cookbooks that have been influential to you, or do you want to talk a little bit about the role that that cookbook played? Well, I grew up, you know, I grew up with The Joy of Cooking. Sure. So that was, you know, the cookbook my mom had. Those were the recipes that I cooked. She also had uh, another cookbook called Thoughts for Buffet. Okay. Which was a really, like an old fashioned, uh, entertaining cookbook from yeah. the, from the sixties okay. that I loved. And I just remember certain recipes that she used to make and they were company, you know, for when company was coming over. Right. And, um, and then there was an early cookbook, a Craig Claiborne cookbook from the New York Times, not one of the big tomes, but one of these, it was a paperback cookbook with Craig Claiborne and it was fantastic. And I okay. can remember cooking those fancy sort of seventies dishes from them. But right. really the one that changed my life was the, uh, not changed my life, but influenced to t- today is the Marcella Hazan. And that was the first two uh, small paperbacks that she published. It was classic Italian cooking and more classic Italian cooking. And I still have them both and they're falling apart. And I bought them when I was a graduate student living in Florence. And, and it was the first time that I was living on my own. And I was, had a tiny kitchen and I was going to the market and shopping and cooking through these recipes and really learning, uh, you know, techniques and, and how to measure and, you know, how to buy just what you needed. And, and, um, and they really taught me a lot that I absorbed. And, you know, that's sort of, I think the most influential cookbook on me. Yeah. I think it's an influential cookbook for a lot of people, but um, particularly, I think I love that story of you sort of shopping at the market and then coming home and cooking through Marcella's recipes. You also wrote a piece for the Atlantic a while ago called The Joy of Cookbooks, Mm -hmm. which I loved. And you said in there, the last few days, I've been thinking about how I've abandoned many of my cookbooks, and that made me sad. So I wanted to ask you what you thought like the role of cookbooks is today, and particularly, you know, printed cookbooks, a collection of recipes that you keep on your shelf and how you relate to those? I guess the ones that I relate to the most, I mean, like everybody else, I'm, you know, constantly looking at Instagram and, 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 you know, social media and the, but the ones that stick out are the recipes, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to a cookbook that have, has recipes that teach me new techniques. Okay. Uh, little things that can inform my own cooking. And so like everybody else in the world, you know, Otolenghi, obviously. Right. Um, I also really like Alison Roman's cookbook, Dining In. Yeah. Because I, you know, she has a really simple way. She has a, I find that her, um, her view of cooking is very similar to mine, but she, you know, has a different way of, of doing certain things. Like, you know, she caramelizes lemon in a pan a lot and makes dishes really bright. I don't know. It's a few different techniques that I've taken from her. <laughs> right. And then there's, you know, there's cookbooks like, uh, Instant Pot 
cookbooks. Like Melissa Clark wrote an instant pot yeah. cookbook. And, um, I have an instant pot. I, you know, everybody, you? all yeah. my friends, like, like Melissa, like Evan Kleiman, um, they tell me you have to get one. It's amazing. <laughs> right. And, you know, I got one and it is amazing. So I have a few instant pot cookbooks, you know, by friends. And, um, so those are the cookbooks. I mean, I love, you know, I, I love buying cookbooks. I, I love reading them. Um, I don't necessarily cook from them. Okay. Especially if I'm working on my own cookbook at the time. Right. But for baking, I do, you know, yeah, for, baking. for baking, like David Leibowitz's cookbooks yeah. and Dory Greenspan. And, yeah. You know, those are great if I'm going to cook, but I don't necessarily always go to their cookbooks. I sometimes just go to their websites and sure, you know, cause it's easy to borrow your term. They're more maybe inspirational for you. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're inspirational. Yeah. What do you make classic Italian dishes in the instant pot? Uh, no, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, what I use, well, they partly inform. I mean, I, I ate a lot of, we ate a lot of beans and legumes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And so that's made it very easy. We also sure. eat a lot of grains like farro and, and barley and things. And that's made it super, super simple. Cause when I'm at home and when I'm not working on a book, I, we eat very simply because otherwise I'm out doing culinary tours or I'm, I'm entertaining and, and we eat a little bit too richly. <laughs> and so, sure. so I usually go to the farmer's market, buy, you know, a week's worth of vegetables and we eat grains and legumes and vegetables a week. So the Instapot and for broth, it's amazing. For broth. Yes. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought since w- your latest book is all about entertaining and having people over and having a nice party, sometimes around a specific occasion, I thought I'd give you a couple occasions and have you draw one from our little secret ingredient <laughs> deck of cards and see if you can conjure up a, perhaps a main dish or some sort of dish you would serve um, for this event using that ingredient. Okie dokie. And feel free to take... I shuffled, but you can take oh, from the I'll just take top, it from the, the top. middle. Okay. So what's our first secret oh, ingredient? Oh, God. Can't, I'm not using this okay, one. We'll this skip is, it. This is, I can say what it is. It's okay. dragon fruit. I can't even get that oh. in Italy. <laughs> okay, yes, fair. <laughs> um, oh, this is good. Pumpkin. Pumpkin. Okay. And the occasion is it's a New Year's brunch, a New Year's Day brunch. A New Year's Day brunch with pumpkin. Um, well, what I really like to do is pair pumpkin with sausage. Okay. Yeah. And where I'll usually put it to, on pasta, I think for New Year's Day brunch, uh, crostini or bruschetta would be really nice. Yeah. And so I would saute the, the, um, sausage and, and maybe roast off the, the pumpkin and make that into sort of a topping for a bruschetta. Delicious. Yeah. I love it. Let's do another one. Uh, let's see what this okay. ingredient is. Smoked salmon. Ooh, this is kind of challenging. Smoked salmon, and we're having a campfire cookout. We've gone camping for the weekend. <laughs> You're talking to somebody who's never been camping in <laughs> their life. No. Oh, no. Okay. Remember, I'm Italian. Um, well, you're from St. Louis. Okay. So, it's, so, so it's, you have fire. Let's yes. think about something fire roasted or fire grilled. or. Well, my favorite pairing is eggs with salmon. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with lox and eggs and onions. Right. So I would say um, what I would really like to do is turn it into an appetizer. Okay. And um, because I've brought some produce with me, I've brought either radicchio or endive. Okay. So I would make those into little boats. And I think what I would do is, is, is caramelize the onions and then quickly sort of scramble the eggs and at the last minute throw in the chopped salmon and then fill these little boats up as a way to eat them without having to actually dirty plates that you would have to then wash after you're camping out. See, that's perfect. Having never been camping, you still know that you <laughs> I don't do. want to dirty don't want plates. It. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Okay, let's do one final one. Okie dokie, here we go. <laughs> it's matzah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Should we go with it? 
Uh, why not? Because I can get it. All right, you could get it. I feel um, like I shouldn't cheat. And this is going to be a birthday party. <laughs> if it's a birthday party and it's matzah, I'm going to make. Uh, well, it's not going to be Italian at all. I'm going <laughs> to. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go look on David Leibovitz's <laughs> website and do his matzah crack or whatever that thing is yes, called, and yes. just. Because I've always wanted to make it and I never had. And it's my birthday and I can make what I want. There you go. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us. Well, thank you. That was a fun game. Let's head now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Great. So we just sat down with Elizabeth Mancilli to talk about her latest cookbook, The Italian Table, and I'm hoping you have some wisdom to share with us. Well, it's a beautiful book. It is. And yes. um, it's her first that's sort of a large format. She's uh-huh. done other books as well that are more guides to uh, places in Italy. Right. And she is a fantastic guide, let me just tell you. she When we were in Venice, we downloaded her app, uh-huh. which she has this great um, series of apps for different cities and followed it around to all the gelaterias and right. the, and <laughs> right. the, the fish markets everywhere that we could go. Uh, and she's a totally trustworthy guide. Yeah. So she's been living in Italy for many years and her um, just view of the place and the way that she looks at the people and, and pays attention to what is important to them comes through in her book really well from the, the grannies on the street who were making pasta, um, to, you know, the, the priests and the, and churchgoers and children. I mean, everyone, she really, she really observes them beautifully. Right. Yeah. A Midwestern girl moves to Italy, been there mm-hmm. a long, long time, but really is sort of, um, as you noted, paying homage to the country. And I mean, this, pretty much herself Italian at this point, right? Yes, but yeah. And she doesn't do it in a saccharine way. I yeah. feel like she does it in a very honest uh, way that that is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful portrait of the of the country. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Celia. Anytime. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from the Italian table, the ricotta stuffed zucchini and a spinach tart. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And you can join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Paula Forbes, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. 
The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.